Good morning, Bethel Church family. Would you turn with me into your Bibles to Romans chapter 1? We'll be in verses 16 and 17 today. I just want to thank each one of you for joining us today on this online weekend worship service. I pray that this time is encouraging to you as, as we seek to be people who, who glorify God by making this, by being disciples who make disciples. If you are new or just checking out our service, ah, I'm so thankful for, for it. Uh, it is a, your time is a gift to us. And I, again, just want and desire for this time to make much of Jesus and therefore encourage and encourage you. Um, for y'all who do not know me, my name is Nick Husterberg. I am the church planning pastor with Bethel Southwest. I have the privilege and, and just blessing to be able to lead this church plant that will be that will be um, unfolding over the next couple of months in the area of Southwest Middlesex. It is exciting to see what God is doing. And I continue to ask for your prayers as we need God's leading day by day. As I begin, I, I have a question. Um, and the question is this, how many of you uh, can effectively care for your car? How many of you can effectively care? I mean, like you can actually do it. And the second question I have for you is, how many of you think you can effectively care for your car? Unfortunately, I fall into the second category. A few years ago, while I was living in California with my wife, uh, we had a car. We had a 2008 Toyota Corolla. This car was sharp. Roll-up windows, manual locks, no cruise control. On top of it, I think Toyota had a, had a thing to make gray cars that year because we saw a gray Toyota Corolla every two seconds. And we actually kind of felt like if we were ever going to rob a bank, we would do it with our car because... Well, it'll just get lost in the other Toyota Corollas. Well, one day as I was driving, I kind of noticed a spike in the temperature gauge. Noticing this issue, I had a couple choices to make. One, I can call my brother who had been a Toyota mechanic for 20 years and ask him his advice. Or I could try to do it on my own. I mean, as you can tell, I probably, I chose the second option. I got onto Google, I kind of looked up what might be the problem, went down to my local auto parts store, got some coolant, and, try, and uh, temporarily fixed the problem. The problem was I actually didn't fix the problem. A couple of weeks later, on a fateful night, we had to drive about two hours to go see my parents. This night was Christmas Eve. And we are going to visit them and spend that time with them. And something happened as we were about five minutes from my parents' house. The, the engine shut off, steam came up, and power steering went out. Luckily for us, we were able to kind of coast into a small parking lot where I then was able to call my brother. Remember, he was a Toyota mechanic and say, Davey, uh, I need your help. Um, by the end of that night, my brother had had our car towed to his house from a friend of his, had gotten the part and replaced it. So by 10 o'clock that evening, on Christmas Eve, we were driving back home to San Diego. Well, one thing I learned 
is that sometimes there's problems I cannot fix on my own. What I learned from that situation is there is some problems I just do not have the expertise to do, and some other people do. My brother was able to fix a problem I could not overcome. With all the effort I had, he could do what I could not do. How often do we do that ourselves? How often do we try to fix problems that we have no business trying to fix? And even a more serious note, how often we try to fix our greatest problem with things that were never meant to fix them. How often do we run to things, people, objects to satisfy a deeper need within us that in the end can never actually be satisfied by those things? Today's passage is what many would consider to be the thesis of Romans. This today's passage is a passage I believe claims to answer our greatest need to a problem we cannot fix. And that is by giving us an actual Savior. Our passage today gives us and shows us what we actually need in this life. Again, today we'll be in Romans 1, 16 through 17. And I've entitled this sermon, A Savior That Actually Saves. And the main point of our message today is this, that the gospel message is the only thing that saves us from our greatest problem, which is sin. And reveals to us, God, the gospel message is the only thing that saves us from our greatest problem, which is sin. And reveals to us God. Our outline for today will go like this. First of all, the gospel saves. What an amazing reality. The gospel saves. Next is the gospel is for the world and for you. The gospel is for the world and for you. And finally, the gospel reveals God and his plan to the world. The gospel reveals God and his plan toward the world. So let me read the passage. I'm going to pray for our time and then we'll begin. Romans 1, 16 through 17. I'm reading from the ESV. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for this time. Lord, I pray for this message, that it would be encouraging to those who need to hear the truths of the gospel, how it affects our, our life. Lord, I pray for those who are, who are running after false, satisfying things to answer the greatest need that they would see how the gospel answers their greatest need. Lord, I pray for those who are not Christians in here, that they would hear and see the gospel and its life-changing effects. Be with us. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. 
as Pastor Allen spoke last week, the book of Romans is written to a group of people like us. People who have not uh, yet arrived and a people who need to be reminded of their need. Of our need. Of your need. Of my need. For the person and work of Jesus Christ. This brings us to our first point today. The gospel saves. The gospel saves. This comes from the first part of Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is definitely shameful. Paul begins with this phrase that is actually foreign to the way of our thinking. When we come to the word shame, we, we understand it in terms of personal feeling toward a situation that has taken place. The problem with our understanding is that we really don't understand the social implications of shame in our non-shame culture. We don't understand what it means to, to take on shame of something in a shameless culture. See, the culture that Paul was talking into is what we call an honor-shame culture. And so when you are shamed, you basically are calling, you are losing, you are neglecting, you are walking away from your other life. When Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he's talking more about, more than just being embarrassed to talk about Jesus at work. This phrase in an honor-shame culture means the same thing as we see Jesus talk about in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Let me read it for you. Jesus said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. When Paul speaks of not being ashamed of the gospel, it's because Paul believed it was a treasure worth selling everything for. Paul believed that if he was going to be shamed for believing in the gospel, which he was, that it was worth it. Therefore, he could be unashamed. He'd be not ashamed. Ashamed. Because it was worth it. The gospel was worth it. If we're honest with ourselves, the gospel is a shameful and ridiculous message. Honestly, let's just step back for a moment and, 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 and say it out loud. We believe that a Jewish man was God. He healed people. He made food appear and then died. Oh yeah, he rose again. Yet, we sit here singing, talking about, completely surrendering our lives to this news. Yet this morning, two to three billion people lift their voices to this Jewish Messiah. It's because despite the shameful, crazy news of the cross, it is the greatest news. It is a treasure worth giving up everything for. I remember when Emily and my wife Emily and I were dating, there was a point that happened where I knew she was the one. 
I knew that Emily, that I desired Emily Burrow to become Emily Husterberg. And so at that point, what I did was I saved up all the money I possibly could. I slept on a camping cot to avoid buying a bed. I ate cheap food. I didn't buy anything. I, I didn't buy clothes. I didn't buy literally anything. I, I, I ruined with six other people to save money. I did whatever I could to save up money to buy that ring because she was worth it. And I want to show her she was. So when Paul writes to the Roman church and encourages them to not be ashamed of the gospel, he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's because it's worth it. And it's worth it simply because God saves. The gospel saves. We live in a world that's constantly asking the question, what is wrong? We live in a world that's constantly trying to figure out what is wrong with us. Why do you think self-help books exist? Everyone knows there's something seriously wrong with this world, but what is it? We live in a cultural culture that acknowledges the problem. But like me refilling my coolant into a broken water pump, it just doesn't fix the issue and they can't fix the issue. That's because they don't understand what the issue is. The issue is not outside of us. The issue is us. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us is sin. The issue, our issue is sin. Sin is the problem. Sin has destroyed us. Sin has created this longing in our soul for something more. So when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, it is because the gospel answers the problem to our greatest need. The gospel answers the problem to our greatest need, and that is the separation from God due to our sin. Sin has separated us from God. From the beginning of Scripture, it's clear that we were created to worship God. That's what you were created for. That was what I was created to do. And because of sin, because of this idea that we know better than God, it has separated us from Him. And therefore, we no longer worship Him. We no longer do what we were created to do. Therefore, we long for something more. Our, our souls, our, our inner beings know that this is not everything that exists. Because we have rejected God. That rejection of our Creator is called sin. That rejection of the created order leads us to death because. It is a rejection of a perfect, holy, and loving God. The gospel news shows us that God made a way to save us from the punishment of our sin and restore us back to union with God. The gospel tells us that there is a way for which we as sinners who rejected God can come back to Him. And the book of Romans will walk this journey with us as it says that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. And the gospel message tells me that Christ died for all of this. And that now I can face no longer, I can no longer have to face condemnation from my sin 
but I'm graciously given everything as the son and daughter of Jesus, of God. That I am now given everything as the son and daughter of God. The gospel tells me that I can again do what I was created to do, and that is worship and live for God. What is wrong with our world? Our sin. How is it made right? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel tells me that I can be saved. The gospel tells you that you can be saved. And the gospel tells us how we are made right by God. Then who is the gospel for? If the gospel tells us that we can be made right with God, then who's the gospel for? And this brings us to our second point. The gospel is for the world and for you. The gospel is for them and it's also for you. This comes from the second half of um, Romans 1.16. It says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Who is the gospel for? The gospel is for all who believe. This is interesting. Remember, Paul's writing to a group of Christians that have walked a unique journey. A church, this church in Rome was started by Jews, then ran by Gentiles when the Jews were kicked out of Rome. And now, it's call, and, and now the Jews are back and they're called to embrace unity. So Paul wants to, them, wants to remind them that this message, which was first given to the Jews, honestly, it was, it was given to the Jews at first, but was never intended for them only. The gospel may have been given to the Jews, but it was never intended for them only. You see this in Genesis 22, 18. And in your offspring, talking to Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth, earth be blessed and in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be, be blessed. And that offspring we know was Jesus. The offspring would be Jesus. How are all the nations blessed is through Jesus alone. The gospel is for the world. This is why we're planting a church in Southwest Middlesex. This is why we believe in giving a week of your year to go. This is why we have a mission statement that we have, that we want to be a people who glorify God by being disciples who make disciples. Because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Romans 10 asks us this question, how will they hear if we do not go? If this message is false, then we're idiots. But if this message is true, then nothing else matters. I say that as hyperbole. There are people living an internally hell-bound life. There are people right now who do not know Jesus, and if they die, they will go to hell forever. Do I really believe John 14, 6? Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do I really believe that those who die outside of Christ will go to a place of eternal torment? Do I believe that? Do you believe that? 
if I'm honest, I'm not a fan of modern evangelistic techniques that guilt you for not being an extrovert and do not take into account the different giftings of the body. I don't, I don't I'm not a fan of it. But what I am it is, is heavy hearted for the fact that there are people who do not know Christ and will eternally face punishment because of it. And they're your neighbors. They're your friends. They're your family members. I'm not here to guilt you for not sharing the gospel. I just want that reality to be known. That there are people next to you who do not know Christ. And if they die today, they will go to hell forever. If you're listening and you, you would consider yourself not a Christian, like you just, you check this out, you want to know a little bit more about Christianity, I would ask you to contemplate these truths. A guy named Jesus of Nazareth died and rose again. And is now worshipped around the world. It is the greatest hoax of history or the greatest message of history. You cannot be neutral. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you would like, I am just looking, I'm just trying to understand more. I'm asking that question. If a guy by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth died and rose again, and now we worship him around the world, it's either the greatest hoax or the greatest message of history. I, I want to plead with you, come to Christ today. Today, ask God to forgive you of your actions against His loving care. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Confess your sin before God, your rejection of His goodness, and come to Him and receive perfect forgiveness. If you have questions, or even if you just want to call me an idiot, I am asking you to connect with me. I would love to talk to you. I'd love to answer any questions you have because you cannot be neutral. Reject Him fully, or confess him completely. So while the gospel is for the world, the gospel is also for you. Well, the gospel is for the world, it's also for you. Milton Vincent in his book, The Gospel Primer, says this, It is a daily battle to believe the gospel. But there is simply no way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than by overwhelming with such things with the truths of the gospel. As Christians, it's easy to forget the fullness of the gospel and run to what I call functional saviors. Functional saviors are things we use to fill our deep need for a relationship with God. Well, while we would say we rely on Christ for everything, as the famous song says, we are prone to wander. And in being prone to wander, we run after what these things are called functional saviors, believing that these things will bring us peace, joy, and happiness. Some functional saviors could be this. One of them could be our own desire. Our own desires are for, for something better in our lives, our own opinions maybe, like, they can be our functional savior. Money. Money. 
Well, money is not evil can easily be a functional savior. Your career. Amusement. Just trying to bleed out the day. Not thinking about things. Not trying, trying to, to avoid that emptiness in your heart. Religion. Have you ever wondered why there's so many religions in the world? It's because everyone, there's so many people who, everyone knows that there's something wrong. And they're trying to make it right. Relationships and connections. We can use other people to be our functional savior. How they make us feel. How they give us affirmation. How they, how they allow us to be who we are. Functional saviors are not bad in themselves. Some of these things, sorry, some of these things are not bad in themselves. But functional saviors destroy. Functional, savior, functional saviors never give life and always destroy. So how do you identify your functional savior? How do you identify what you run to t- to bring you joy? Andy Fortner says this. He gives a few diagnostic techniques. And then here's the first one. If only blank, then I would be happy. If only blank, then I would be happy. Second, I get my sense of significance from blank. I get my sense of significance from blank. Next one. I would protect and preserve blank at any cost. I would protect and preserve blank at any cost. I fear losing. What do you fear losing? The thing that gives me the greatest pleasure is when I lose blank, I get angry, resentful, frustrated, anxious, or depressed. For me, life depends on the thing that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning is These diagnostic tools help us understand what we might be utilizing as our functional savior. I would love for you to work through those. I would love maybe in your small group this upcoming week to talk about those. What are your functional saviors? Believing that things that you believe will bring you joy, peace, happiness, fulfillment outside of a relationship with God. Yes, I'm not saying that that you fall to these if you're not a Christian. We as Christians fall to these all the time. If I want to dumb these down, maybe simplify these, I'll just ask you two questions. Simple one is this. What are you living for? What are you living for? I just want to ask that. How is that working out for you? What are you living for and how is that working out for you? It's easy to run to functional saviors to think it can bring you peace, satisfaction, and joy while all the while ignoring the actual Savior who can actually satisfy your deepest need, which is a relationship with God. Paul was unashamed of the gospel because the gospel did what only it could do. It saved us. It provided us an actual Savior. This brings us to our second, our third point for today. 
The gospel reveals God and his plan to the world. The gospel reveals God and his plan to the world. This comes from Romans 1.17. For in it, the gospel, talking about the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul continues to help us understand why the gospel is worth giving up everything for. The word for here helps us understand that Paul is continuing the argument. Remember, when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, he's telling a group of Christians why this news is worth surrendering everything for. Why this news is worth giving up everything for. And he begins by saying this, that it, referring back to the gospel, reveals the righteousness of God. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What this means is somewhat vague. Uh, some believe that this, that it refers, that this righteousness of God refers to what the righteousness given to people who put their faith in Christ. The righteousness of God is the righteousness given to people who put their faith in Christ. I understand that argument. I, I understand where they're coming from. It, it, in the course of Paul's conversation here in Romans 1, 16 through 17, it, it, it's, it could be, that he's saying the righteousness of God is revealed to us and given to us through the gospel, which is completely true. It's completely true. But I think Paul here is actually saying something different. And it actually fits better into the course of an argument that we see. So we see three attributes of God actually highlighted here in verse 16, 17, and 18. In verse 16, we see the power of God. The salvation, uh, the a gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In verse 18, what we'll talk about next week, we see the wrath of God. Another characteristic of God is revealed. And so when, when Paul in here also says now the righteousness of God, it just seems as though he's continuing this idea of God's character being revealed. And each one of these description of God's character helps us understand things of God. So here, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb, dying for sinners, reveals to the world the perfect righteousness of God. We see God more clearly, more evidently, more perfectly through the gospel. And the gospel actually answers the question of to what seem to be contrary themes of the Old Testament, that a holy God who is perfect, righteous, and just can forgive unholy people. The gospel allows us now to understand how a holy God can forgive us. The gospel reveals to me the fullness of God's righteous character in saving sinners. Through Christ's work on the cross for me, I can understand that God will punish all evil. That God must, as his character, punish all evil. And then that there is not one wrong ever done, ever, from the most heinous war crime to the smallest white lie, that God must punish. That God cannot not not punish. He will, because that's who God is. He has to. But, but because of the gospel, we understand that punishment either a fall on the shoulders of the individual who committed it for eternity facing God's punishment 
or or we have been placed on the Son of God, Jesus, the perfect sacrificial lamb. The gospel reveals the fullness of God's character by saying that God can be both the just and the justifier. That we as sinners can come still before God, even though our sin should keep us from Him. And the only way that is possible is through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you and for me. That's the beauty of the news. That a holy God can now have relation with me again because of the gospel, because of the giving of His Son. No wonder why Paul says that this is a message we're sacrificing everything for. No wonder why Paul says this message is amazing. Why do I believe that the gospel displays the fullness of God's character? Because the gospel shows me that God can actually do what he said he would do. Forgive sin without contradicting his perfect nature. While the gospel reveals the character of God, it also reveals God's plan for the world. It reveals to the world God's plan for salvation. It not only reveals to me God's character, but reveals honestly my role. How will God save people? Through His Son, Jesus Christ, but through people putting their faith in Him. It's a role that seems almost crazy. It almost goes against every aspect of me. It goes against my bones. It seems too good to be legit. That all I have to do is put my faith in this Jewish Messiah and I will be saved. And yes, that is true. And it's been true from the beginning. Genesis 15, 6 says this. And he believed, or another word would that be had faith in the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted to him Abraham as righteousness. From the beginning, it was Faith in God gave you righteousness. And today it's faith in the work of Christ will give you your righteousness. He just asked us to believe. That is it. Nothing else. A dedicated and holy life is an effect of my faith in Christ. It's not the reason Christ saved me. Christ didn't look down and say, yeah, Nick would be a great object to save. God looked at me and said, in your sin, in your wreckage of a life, I will save you. And now all I can do is dedicate my life to him because I love him so much. If you're listening to me and you believe that you need to just clean yourself up to get better, to get right with God, you've missed the point. Honestly, if you're here in um, and you are living a dual Christian life, like you're living like on Sundays in a small group, you're living one way, but other than that, you're living for yourself, maybe sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend during the week, or maybe you're just hiding an addiction to alcohol, drugs, TV, pornography, anger. You're not believing in the gospel. You're believing in a functional savior. You're believing that this functional, fictional Savior has power. And I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. I don't listen to that. But I'm, believe, but I'm saying you have lost the focus of the gospel. When I say that I must clean myself up before God, I come to God, I'm saying that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. 
When I say that I want to live a dual life, I'm saying that God's love is not enough for me and he doesn't know how I can find true happiness. When I'm hiding my sin, I'm saying that God's declaring me perfect before his eyes isn't the answer to my greatest problem. But when I say that I'm justified by faith alone, I am saying this, that Jesus' sacrifice was enough for me. Therefore, I can come to him as a sinner. That God does love me. He does know what's best for my life. That God has provided the answer to my greatest need. And that answer is, by, is the provision of a Savior that actually saves. I offer nothing to this relationship except my sin. And I receive everything from this relationship as I now am a child of God. Again, I, I leave you with this question. I leave you with this question. What are you living for? What saviors are you running to? Are you running to a functional, fictional savior that promises peace but only provides destruction? Are you trying to hide your sin? Are you trying, are you trying to act a certain way? Or are you running to an actual savior? Are you looking at the gospel message and saying, that is so beautiful. I am perfect before God, not because of my works, not because of who I am, but because of what Christ did for me. And you're running to an actual Savior who can fix your actual deepest need, which is a relationship with God. Again, what are you living for? And if you're running for after fictional Saviors, functional Saviors, how is that working for you? Paul spoke to a group of Christians just like us and said that there is a message worth giving everything for because that message is about a Savior that actually saves. Today, today, will you put your full faith in that Savior? Will you put your full rest in what He has done for you? And when you see those functional saviors, will you throw them away? Because they will only destroy. Well, Christ gives us life in that abundantly.